Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. All right, so as we get started, um, go ahead and have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 49. Um, It's going to take me a few minutes to get there, but I'm going to have to sort of summarize what came before and the chapter itself before I get to our text tonight. So hopefully I can get through it somewhat quickly. So lately I have been reading the first book of the Lord of the Rings series. I have this kind of long-term goal to read the entire trilogy. And I say long-term goal because I started the first book maybe six or seven months ago. And it's been a really slow process trying to read it because of everything else I've had to I've had to do and all the other reading I've had to do for class. But uh, it's been an interesting process reading the first book because I've, though this is my first time reading the books, I've seen the movies already. You know, I know how the story ends. Um, I've seen the, the ring go into the volcano. Oh, really? <laughs> Sorry, spoilers. They were written in like the 50s. Um, and so it's been an interesting process because at first, I'll be honest with you, I was a little bored. Now, I, at first I kind of chalked this up to Tolkien himself. Tolkien's style of writing, uh, he doesn't exactly skimp on the details, let's just say. He will give you histories of individuals, let alone histories of peoples. But I realized pretty quickly as I started reading and as I got past the first 50 pages on The Hobbits, that what was happening was I wasn't catching on to the little things Tolkien was doing to signal the end of the story and to signal not only the events but also the themes that kind of bring the whole narrative together. And in order for me to really notice those in a way that I could appreciate, I was going to have to, in a sense, forget that I've seen the movies and read the story as it was presented to me in the actual narrative. In other words, I was going to have to kind of take Frodo's perspective. This scared little hobbit, which all hobbits are little, right? In a very big and scary world where his world hasn't really exited the Shire in decades. And he's being called to go out and to be brave among giants, essentially. Elves and human beings, warriors like Strider, wizards like Gandalf. And as you see instances in the story, where I am in the book, Frodo and his company have just reached Rivendell. Uh, Whenever Mordor is mentioned, this evil, dark place that Frodo's running away from, he does not want to go there. Strider the bravest man he's ever seen other than Gandalf, shudders. He's terrified. Don't mention that place. That's a place you don't want to go. Of course, by the end of the story, that's exactly where they're headed. They're going to have to face the danger. You see, in a fictional storyline or fictional book like Lord of the Rings, foreshadowing is a literary device. 
we use it, if you're a writer, you use it to signal to the end of the story. This is what's coming. But in the Bible, we're actually presented narrative in history, narrative in a way that's embedded in real events with real people. And foreshadowing in that context we call prophecy. Because the divine author of history is pointing us to how it's all going to end. And we just have to have eyes to see in order to notice it. So where can we find foreshadowing in Genesis? Well, there's several places where it's already, it's already happened. We've already seen foreshadowing. So the definition of foreshadowing is something that indicates the occurrence of a future event. That's kind of a basic definition. And we see it, for instance, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what theologians have come to call the proto-evangelium. We have the fall. The fall has just taken place. This curse is going to come upon Adam and Eve. They will die. Their life is going to end. But there's a note of hope for the future in that an offspring of Adam and Eve though bruised by the serpent, will crush the serpent's head. The one who caused the fall will be destroyed. We can be sure of it. Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we have the promise of the blessing to all the nations through Abraham. Abraham, who then is Abram, is taken up out of his land. He's called to go out into the wilderness, a lot like Frodo. And the promise is that though you are really, really old and your wife is really old and barren, you will have a child. And through that child and through your offspring, I will make you into a great nation. And the, nations, and the nation will not only be great, it will bless the entire world. In Genesis 15, 5, Abraham believes that promise and he's reckoned righteous. By faith. We have no idea just from Genesis how that works. Why does he need to be reckoned righteous? We don't even have a sacrificial system yet. So some of this, without the benefit of the rest of Scripture, makes no sense to us. In Genesis, we see the patriarchs. There's this general theme that God prefers to use the unexpected. So, you have the elderly Abraham and Sarah, and they're given a child in spite of their old age. God chooses Jacob over Esau in spite of his deceitfulness and the fact that he is second to Esau. Esau is the older brother. And there's a general thing that God chooses the secondborn over the firstborn. We can see it, for example, in Genesis 48, where Jacob has his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, blessed. And Jacob, seemingly inspired by God himself, puts Ephraim, the secondborn, over Manasseh, the firstborn. And then Joseph doesn't even become a tribe. Have you ever noticed that? There's no tribe of Joseph. It's his sons who become tribes. Even though he's the favorite of the family. You have this idea of what I call the carrier of the covenant which we can define as the son through whom God chooses to fulfill his covenant promises to Abraham. There's this idea that if, you have, if Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, only one of them is going to carry this promise, and God chooses who it's going to be. 
So there's an idea of discrimination in the text. God chooses Isaac over Ishmael. He chooses Jacob over Esau. These two men still become great nations, but they don't become God's favored people. So it's natural to assume that with the next generation, with uh, Jacob's 12 sons, that there's going to be a favored son. And the text is practically screaming at you that it's Joseph. Joseph gets 13 chapters in Genesis devoted to his story. He walks with the Lord and he obeys him. We can see it with Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39. The Lord gives him great success and he honors the Lord for it, even going so far as to forgive his brothers for attempting to get rid of him. In Genesis 50, I love verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He has this perspective that goes beyond himself. Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, have a unique blessing from Jacob, aside from any of the other sons of the twelve. Not the apostles. Jacob's twelve sons. Or, yeah. So as we approach Genesis 49, 1 through 27, what we have is actually a suggestion that something different is happening. It seems like there isn't a favored son. In fact, they're all given the sort of prophetic blessing. So it covers all of the brothers, not just Joseph. And though Joseph is favored in the blessings, he actually gets the largest chunk in the chapter. Some of the other brothers, especially Judah, are favored as well. And the very nature of these blessings suggests that they're pointing to the future. They're pointing away from the individual to their descendants. And there's this play of words that you have to be very sensitive to in Genesis 49, 1 through 27, between, say, Issachar, the individual, and Issachar, the tribe. And the text is not necessarily telling you explicitly which, is, which sense is being used here. You kind of have to have a sensitivity to it. So let's go to actually Genesis 49, 1 through 27. Just some preliminary notes this passage is a very old piece of Hebrew poetry. Commentators are very, are very kind of united on this point, that this is one of the oldest pieces of Hebrew poetry that we have from the Old Testament. It contains elements that will be relevant to the history of Israel before the law is even given later on in its history. For example, have you noticed that Levi, which becomes a priestly tribe, nothing about Levi being a priestly tribe is actually mentioned in the passage about Levi, and he's lumped together with Simeon. There's a sense in which their future is being based on their past. That's why they're lumped together, because both Simeon and Levi end up being wrathful. The purpose in verse 1 is to tell the sons what will happen to them in the days to come. And as I've already pointed out, this is a bit puzzling. The, po the poem blends descriptions of the sons as individuals and the sons as clans or tribes. And so the best way, I think, to interpret these blessings is that they concern the tribes, mainly. The, the primary sense is that if we're talking about Levi, we're actually talking about not what will happen with Levi in the next maybe 50, 60 years that he has to live, but rather what will happen to his descendants 
for however long his line will go. The text also includes favor and disfavor, mostly depending on the actions of the son in question. So as you, as you go through verses 1 through 27, what you will find is that some of the sons get very favorable prophecies, and some of the sons get very disfavorable prophecies. For example, Joseph gets the longest passage, verses 22 through 26, and it is very favorable. Reuben, however, though he is the firstborn from Leah, is denied preeminence among his brothers because he had lain with Bilhah in Genesis 35:22. And Simeon and Levi, who, like I've already said, are kind of lumped together, are cursed because of their wrath. In fact, the text says that their nation or their tribes will be scattered because of what they had done in taking revenge on a town for violating their sister Dinah in Genesis 34. What we also find is that some of the prophetic utterances contain a lot of information, whereas some contain very little. I love this example of Gad, Asher, and Naphtali, which only have one verse between them. It's like a couple of lines. You'll be a pretty good warrior, and that's it. (laughs) And this signals to us which tribes will or did have greater importance of the sons. So let's get to... Genesis 49, 8 through 10 now. So Judah is the fourth son of Leah. And here we have a list. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. And what you find is that Reuben, Simeon, and Levi are mentioned first. So it's kind of going down the list of Leah's sons. And verses 8 through 10 are part of the larger blessing to Judah in verses 8 through 12. He actually has the second longest passage devoted to him. And let's think about what we've already heard about Judah. Remember that in, I said that in Genesis 37 through 50, the lion's share of the material we get there is all about Joseph's story. But in fact, we have exactly one chapter fully devoted to a narrative about Judah. It's the story of Judah and Tamar. And if you remember the story, it ain't that good. <laughs> Things kind of go wrong. Judah has some sons, Aaron and Onan, who get killed. Onan, because he was supposed to provide an heir for heir, um, Thank you. (laughs) Uh, To Tamar and failed to do so. And so the Lord killed him. And so Judah has only one son left, Shelah. But he refuses. Well, he doesn't exactly refuse. He says he's going to give the son to Tamar, but never does. And it's pretty clear that the reason for this is because he's afraid. What if this one's evil too? And I lose all of my heirs in trying to provide an heir for Tamar. So Tamar hatches a plan. She dresses like a prostitute, draws Judah to her, and after the deed is done, keeps his seal, cord, and staff as proof that he was, let's say, the client. 
And when it is revealed that she is pregnant and that he is the father, Judah says of Tamar, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. So the text is very clear. Judah was in the wrong here. This, this, in this sort of familial ethic of Leverite marriage, Judah had done the wrong thing. And actually the Lord himself is recognizing this ethic when he kills Onan. Something very strange to us because we're kind of really far removed from this. But this narrative is strange because it, it interrupts the narrative of Joseph. 37, chapter 37 is about Joseph. Chapter 39 onward is about Joseph. And we just have Judah right here stuck in the middle. Otherwise, it's the only narrative we have specifically about Judah. Obviously, he's included in things that his brothers do or uh, in his relationship with Joseph. But he is not the focus of another narrative for the rest of Genesis. And yet, he's not cursed because of the sin. Reuben is cursed. Simeon and Levi are cursed. And we can attach their curse to a precise thing in the narrative that they did. Judah, we have the sin, but we don't have the curse. We actually have favor. What's happening here? What I think is happening here is that the surprising elements of this text, the fact that Judah is favored, even though his own blood relatives are not for their sins, point entirely to the future. For Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and I would argue even Joseph, their being favored points to the past. It points to things that they did in the past. For Judah, his being favored has everything to do entirely with God's election, God's decision that he is going to be favored. And if the text is indeed early, as most scholars will agree on, this passage actually predicts the reign of the tribe of Judah and the Davidic line itself. Interestingly enough, in my reading, this was even recognized by critical scholars. Critical scholars would say on the basis of the Simeon, Simeon and Levi passage that, oh, this, this is a very early piece of Hebrew poetry. It's even before the priests come around. And yet they get to Judah, and the content of Judah's prophecy is so specific that they think, well, this must have been just inserted into the text later. You see the inconsistency in their argumentation because if this text as a whole is early, we have a prophecy almost 1,000 years prior to the coming of the Davidic line that the Davidic line, not necessarily specifically the Davidic line, but the line in the tribe of Judah is going to receive preeminence and for nothing that Judah did. So that's my introduction. Let's actually get into the text itself. Verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. I can imagine Judah's brothers who've just been through this whole decades-long expedition because of Joseph saying, you're all going to bow down to me, hearing this coming from their ailing father's mouth and going, Really? Not again, yeah. Not again. What are you talking about, Father? 
It completely subverts the expectation that Joseph is preeminent among the brothers. He's favored, but he does not receive this status. His brothers, Joseph's brothers, had already bowed down to him. That had already happened. But because this text, not only the text about Judah, but the text as a whole is pointing forward, it's reasonable to suppose that what this is saying is that the other tribes will bow down to Judah's tribe. That Judah's tribe itself is going to have this preeminent place in the history of Israel and among the tribes of Israel. And then the rest of verse 8 is about Judah's military victories. Judah will have victory over the enemies of Israel. Verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him? So Judah is described as a lion's, as a lion's uh, whelp or a lion's cub. It portrays Judah as a lion who's returned from his prey to the den. And after having laid down in his den, the question, who dares to stir him up, carries with it the sense that Judah will oppose any enemies that come against him. Judah has an absolute place of victory. What is the lion? Someone answer for me. King of the jungle, right? The lion is the predator nobody messes with. So Judah will have victory over his enemies. Again, imagine the other brothers going, what? (laughs) What's going on here? Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Again, the eyes are darting around. What does this mean? So let's, let's break this down by lines. So the first two lines of verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler, ruler's staff from between his feet. This is very surprising because it gives Judah or Judah's tribe kingship. The scepter is a sign of a king's authority and power. Consider Psalm 45, 6. Your throne, O God, is permanent The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. The idea of the scepter is this idea that there is one who has authority. The problem is there won't be a king in Israel until King Saul. And King Saul is a Benjamite. He's from that tribe and not from the tribe of Judah. It's only after him that we find King David, who is of the tribe of Judah, and who establishes the Davidic line within the tribe of Judah. This doesn't happen until 800 years after Judah is dead. And Judah himself does not know this. They're they're still in a foreign land. They don't even have their land yet. They don't have an established nation. At most, they have a big family. The second line, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So this is often recognized by commentators to be a reference to Judah's lineage, that the ruling staff will be passed from father to son through the generations. In other words, once the, once the ruler's staff is given to Judah, it won't leave Judah. 
And again, we see that in the Davidic line much later in the biblical story. What about the third line of verse 10? I'm going to read it again. Until Shiloh comes, it's a very short line, but this one has given commentators problems. Ancient, medieval, and modern. So thanks for scheduling me for this one. In a book called Genesis, an Introduction and Commentary, Andrew Steinman and Tremper Longman III say this about this line of verse 10. The next line of verse 10 has been one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the entire Old Testament. And there has been no consensus among ancient or modern interpreters as to its meaning. This does not leave us in a very good position. But in their commentary on this line, they list four impossible interpretations of this line. Again, in the NASB at least, until Shiloh comes. And as I go through these options, you'll see which one the NASB chose. The first interpretation is until he comes to Shiloh. So this interpretation treats Shiloh as the place to which the person, whoever that is, in the future will come. Shiloh is a town. Indeed, it's actually a town in Israel that's established later on in its history. The problem with this is that the city of Shiloh ceased to be important before David became king and established the Davidic line. It was actually destroyed um, before David became king. So why would it be an important city? We, later in the narrative, Jerusalem actually becomes the important city. It doesn't start that way, uh, but it's where the temple is built. So here's the second possible interpretation. Until he to whom the scepter belongs comes. So this one sort of generalizes the who. Who's coming? Whoever the one to whom the scepter belongs is. So it removes any reference at all to Shiloh in the Hebrew text, but in, in doing so, it requires a change in the Hebrew vowels in the text. Don't ask me any details. I'm just, I don't know Hebrew. I'm just summarizing what I've got in the commentary. <laughs> Third option is until tribute comes to him. So this one's nice in some way. It, it forms a parallel with the next line, um, which if you remember, is, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, the idea that the people will come and give tribute to this him who is in the future. But it has a similar problem that it also requires changing the Hebrew text that we have. So in general, I would prefer an interpretation that doesn't require us to change the Hebrew text. Sometimes it's necessary, sometimes it's not. It depends on the passage. Uh, but those two interpretations, I'm going to just sort of count out uh, because they, they fundamentally change what we're actually reading. And then the last one, and again, you can see that the NASB from which I'm reading uh, prefers this interpretation is until Shiloh comes. So this interpretation sees Shiloh as a proper noun and then applies it to the Messiah. It sees the name as derived from a particular Hebrew root that means to be at ease, to rest, or to be prosperous. And so the picture here, the idea is that Shiloh is the man who comes from the tribe of Judah to bring rest and prosperity to the land. And as he's sort of embodying this concept of rest and prosperity in himself. 
Many Jewish interpreters actually replace Shiloh with Messiah in their translations of this text. So if you don't know, the Targum are these sort of oral transmissions of the Hebrew text uh, that are very big in ancient Jewish, uh, ancient Jewish tradition. So the Targum on Kalos, until the Messiah comes, whose is the kingdom and unto whom shall be the obedience of the nation? So take Shiloh, just replace it with Messiah. And then Targum Pseudo-Jonathan, so this is Pseudo-Jonathan, odd name. This is Pseudo-Jonathan's transmission of the Hebrew text. Until the time that the king, the Messiah, shall come, the youngest of his sons, and on account of him shall the people flow together. So the idea I'm trying to get at here is that this interpretation is accepted both by ancient interpreters and throughout the history of the church. This text is seen as messianic. It operates as a descriptive name for the Messiah, which is common in other Old Testament texts. Think Emmanuel in Isaiah 7.14, which is then applied to Jesus once he comes onto the scene. It's seen as a messianic text. In my opinion, the fourth option is the most plausible option. It avoids problems with the other interpretations like changing the words in the Hebrew text or the problem with Shiloh being a city that ceases to be important pretty early on in, in Israel's history. And it's consistent with how passages like these have been interpreted by Jews and Christians alike. So what we can, I think, plausibly glean from this text is that this passage ought to be read as messianic. There's a person from the tribe of Judah who is being pointed to in the future as the one who will bring rest and prosperity to the Israelites. And since the ruler's staff will never leave his feet, he will reign forever. His reign will not end. There's this very interesting switch from the individuality of Judah to the collective in his tribe to the individuality of the one who's going to receive the status. So we find in the fourth line of verse 10, this reference to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So Shiloh, the Messiah, the king of Judah's line, from whom the scepter will never depart, to him the obedience of the other peoples is going to be owed. Think about that. I don't follow the rules set out by Vladimir Putin. I don't follow his laws. I don't follow his country's laws. I don't owe him anything because I'm not a citizen of Russia. Yet here what we have is that a king is coming to whom I owe obedience. No matter if I'm an American or I'm from the UK or I'm from Russia or I'm from China, I owe this king ultimate obedience. These are big claims, in other words. It kind of breaks the mold of kingship and how we think about what it means to live in a nation. This nation is going to have central importance in the history of the world, and this king is going to be centrally important in the history of the world. Think about Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. If you take 
what's established in Genesis 12, and you think about what's established in verse 10, what you have is that it is through a king of the tribe of Judah that this promise to Abraham is going to be fulfilled. What the Lord is doing is actually giving greater detail as he does throughout Genesis 2. We see this with Abraham. You're going to have a son. And Abraham goes, well, I'm too old. Might as well do it through Hagar. So the Lord has to clarify. No, it's going to be Sarah's son. It's going to come from Sarah. In other words, I'm going to give you the son. You're not going to give yourself the son. This is the Lord giving greater clarity to how this promise in Genesis 12.3 is going to be fulfilled. And then verses 11 through 12 just kind of fill out that detail by giving descriptions of Judah's prosperity. What's clear here, and what I think, if you're reading this, like I said earlier, if you're reading this without the lens of the rest of Scripture, all you have is Genesis, what you're thinking is, well, Israel is going to need a king. But this won't happen for hundreds of years. So what should we expect from reading this passage? Mainly two things. The promise to Abraham to bless all of the nations through him will be fulfilled through Judah's tribe. That is crystal clear. It is not happening through another tribe. And an everlasting kingly dynasty will come out of that tribe and the authority of the one to come, Shiloh or the Messiah, will be prosperous and will be recognized by the nations around Israel. So whatever benefits this king brings is going to be felt by the other nations. As Christians, we know that this prophecy was eventually fulfilled in Christ Jesus. So we have the benefit of the rest of the story. So what about application for this text? In a very real way, you know, I used the example of the Lord of the Rings earlier. Uh, in a very real way, as Christians, it can be very difficult reading the Old Testament. I think that's pretty widespread. Like we, The Old Testament is hard to understand, not only in broad terms, but in even the little areas you read. If you read a book like Lamentations or Ecclesiastes or Exodus or Leviticus, all of us have had experiences, if we've been Christians long enough and we've read enough of the Bible, where we go, why am I reading this, and why do I have to know this? Right? Yeah, we've all had that, we've had that experience. But the purpose of texts like these is to build for us a set of images or descriptions of what the, common, the coming Messiah would look like. Think of it like this. As you read these messianic texts, what's being built for you is kind of this kaleidoscope. It's this greater idea. It's this mosaic of what the Messiah is going to be like. And what we see in the New Testament is that those images are made incarnate. That when Jesus comes, he embodies all of it in himself. Somehow he's both the conquering king and the suffering servant. But he is. And we see that in the story of Jesus. So for us as Christians, though, we already know that Jesus comes as the fulfillment of those expectations and those descriptions, we can nonetheless study these passages to gain a greater appreciation for who Jesus is. And this is, I think, something that Christians just have to 
learn how to hold in balance. We've all heard particularly, you know, contemporary uh, worship songs where the, the fixation is on Jesus in one sense, right? Jesus loves, Jesus loves, Jesus loves, Jesus loves, which is true, yes. But you also owe him your obedience. The obedience of the nations is owed to Jesus, our king. When we bow to him, it is not as we were talking about earlier today, it's not as a white flag. We were joking about a, a contemporary song uh, that talks about surrendering to Jesus as waving the white flag as if you're in battle with him. No, you don't bow down to Jesus because you're in open combat with him. That doesn't make any sense. You bow down to Jesus because you recognize that you owe it to him. That he is God in the flesh. And that he is worthy of your worship and worthy of tribute as your king. And this text helps us to get a fuller understanding of what the scriptures actually say Jesus is like. So we gain a more accurate picture of Jesus' person and work. Jesus is the one who holds the scepter. He is from the tribe of Judah. As, as Mark read earlier from Isaiah 11 the root of Jesse, right? He is the one who was prophesied to come. And the interesting thing for us as Christians and where we're situated in the church age is that he is the one who did come, in a sense is here, is present through us as the body of Christ, but he's also still the one who will come. We have an uncertain future to look towards as well. The story isn't over, even if we know how it will end. There's foreshadowing that applies to us as it did to Judah and his brothers and to Jacob himself. I imagine Jacob was probably surprised as he was saying all of this. So as we build our understanding of Jesus, we cannot accurately share the gospel without incorporating the image of Christ as king, as the one to whom we owe obedience and submission. And we must remember that Jesus, the Jesus whom we are expecting to return is that everlasting king of the tribe of Judah, the son of David. That foreshadowing applies to us. Foreshadowing in narrative calls our attention to the future of a story, right? The future for Frodo. But when it's embedded in history, it's our future. And as Noah, I think, eloquently described, we only have a very small place in the story. Judah was going to be long dead before he saw one of his own descendants become king. So what do, we, what do you do? You trust. Okay, the prophecy's true. I don't know how it's true. I don't know how it's going to come true. We got to get out of Egypt first, but it's true. Since God is the author of history, his foreshadowing is prophetic and gives us hope in an uncertain future. As followers of Jesus Christ, we can be certain that Jesus will return as the victorious king and that we will see him not as the one who condemns us, but as the one who loved us enough to die for us. But that is only true if we have repented and placed our faith in him for our salvation. So with the benefit of the entire story, what we can say is that there is a way to become a citizen of his kingdom. There's a way to become the one who gives tribute and obeys him 
And that is by surrendering your life to him. Again, not as a white flag. But because you recognize his place in your life. You recognize that his very presence demands your obedience. Not because it's bad for you. Not because it's oppressive. But because he loves you. He has compassion. He will forgive your sin. So that's the key. So the band's going to start coming up. Um, And as they come up, I I encourage you to just reflect on, um, reflect on who Jesus is. Reflect on your image, the image you have in mind of him. Whether you are, would classify yourself as a Christian or not, you need an accurate picture of who he is. And that accurate picture must include his status as our everlasting king. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.